you are here with us today for the first time, I'd like to just welcome you again. My name is Jay Duncan, and we are in the middle of a series on the Lord's Prayer. And today we're going to be just continuing our growth and our understanding of this phenomenal prayer, which really is just such a comprehensive pattern of discipleship and understanding of the kingdom and understanding of who God is. Uh, and, and really the heart behind this entire series is to equip us as the people of God to pray more frequently, more fervently, more effectively, more fruitfully, more powerfully, uh, and more purposefully. So that being said, I'm going to open up with the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to invite you guys to join me in the Lord's Prayer. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to just not waste a moment. We're going to jump right in to talking about the role of the church in God's kingdom coming to the earth, and more specifically, why we should pray for the church. So let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'd like to take just about 30 seconds to, to a minute and just interact with the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit if there's any part of that prayer he wants to highlight if um, there's someone that the Lord brings to your mind to forgive, if there's something that he brings to your mind to receive forgiveness for, if there's provision, uh, whatever, the, whatever the Holy Spirit is accentuating, just take a minute to partner with him right now. Thank you, Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, today I pray that as we open the scriptures, and we focus in on the church. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd bring illumination and that you would bring inspiration. Holy Spirit, I pray that if you so choose, you would even bring correction, that you would correct paradigms, that you would correct mindsets and attitudes that we have had against and about the church. Lord, we know that our time is insufficient to really do an exhaustive work on who the church is and what we're called to do, but I ask that you would just, you would awaken our hearts today. I ask that you would awaken our hearts to your love for your people. I ask that you would awaken our hearts to the powerful purpose that you have put into the church of the living God. I pray that you would show us why praying for the church is so important and how we can participate and partner with your spirit in advancing your kingdom on the earth as we love and we care for and we pray for the church of God. I ask these things today in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, this morning to the book of John. John chapter 17. And I'm going to move just as quickly and thoroughly as possible. And I want to talk very quickly on the role of the church and the advancement of God's kingdom. The role of the church in the advancement of God's kingdom. Does the church play a role in bringing the kingdom of God, growing the kingdom of God, stewarding the kingdom of God into the earth? I believe it does. And I believe the scriptures are very, very clear that the church of the living God, God's people, 
is the agent of God that he utilizes to bring God's kingdom to the earth. Now, if you're with us today for the first time, we've actually been on this theme of teaching and praying into God's kingdom coming to the earth for a number of weeks. And we're bringing this to a close here in the next few weeks. And as we bring this to a close, there's a number of things that we've talked about, but we've not yet talked about the power of the church of God in God's kingdom plan. So if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Number one, the church very simply is a witness to who Jesus is, and the church is a witness to his kingdom on the earth. We're going to look at John chapter 17, and we're going to begin at verse 20. John 17, verse 20, this is Jesus just just hours before he's about to be betrayed. He is about to enter into his suffering in the form of crucifixion and just torturous, horrendous beating for the redemption of mankind's sin, for the purchasing of mankind back into relationship with God, and perhaps more importantly, uh, for the inauguration of his kingdom and his life to be brought into the earth. So it's a very, very serious moment. One of the ways I like to frame this is if, if, you were, if you were approaching the final hours of your life, you would really want to hone in on the things that are the most important to pass on to your family or to your friends or to your loved ones that are surrounding you in those closing moments. And that's the context right here in John chapter 17. Jesus is reserving the most important things to pray for right here in the garden as he is going through his, what many people call his high priestly Prayer. So here in verse 20, this is, these are the things that Jesus is praying for. He says, my prayer is not for them, referring to his disciples at that time. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, one of the themes that you're going to hear today is the power of the church to preserve and to sustain this incredible gift of faith in Christ and the assignment that we have as God's people. And listen to this. Jesus says, I pray not only for them, I pray for those who will believe through their message. He's not even saying this is my message anymore. He has so given this over to his disciples. They have complete ownership of this. He is saying that the world is literally, literally going to be redeemed, restored, preserved. The, the, the earth is going to enter into its new creation destiny by their message. That's powerful. So he's praying right there in that moment, thousands of years ago, he was praying for us today. Because we are the recipients of this message of faith, we are the recipients of this gift of new life in Christ Jesus. And look at verse 21. He says, I pray that all of them may be one. I pray that they would enter into a oneness of faith, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And here's why. Look at this. Look at the prophetic witness. Look at the power of witness that Jesus is praying into he says, essentially, I'm praying that they would be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I pray that they may be one. I pray that they would enter into this new creation reality, and I pray that they would relate to one another in the spirit of life, love, honor, and oneness. And in so doing, the world will know there is something that stands out about this people. We're a witness. 
We are witness. When we gather together like we're doing today, we're a witness. When you gather in small gatherings in your homes, you're a witness. Every time you meet with another believer in the name of Jesus and you come together for mutual edification, encouragement, strengthening, sharpening, you're a witness. When you fight for your marriage, you're a witness. You're a witness. When you choose to handle things differently on the job, and I'm not talking about lowering standards of excellence, I'm just talking about doing things differently in the value structure and the culture of God's kingdom, you're a witness. You're a witness that who Jesus said he is, he in fact is. And you're a witness to the fact that who he, what he said that he did and what he in fact did actually happened. You're a witness. And Jesus is praying. And the longer I get the incredible privilege to serve in this capacity of church ministry and, and church life, I understand why he prayed so specifically for our oneness. How many of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about? I know because we're fallible, we're broken, we're offendable people, we're, we're immature people, we, we, um, we blame, we justify, we hurt, we're selfish, we're proud. All of those things end up in the breakdown of a people. It ends up in the breakdown of a spiritual family. It ends up in the breakdown of relationships, and we see this over and over again. But here, essentially, Jesus is saying, hey, fret not, I'm praying for you guys. There is a supernatural power that's being released on our behalf. In fact, I just, I just want to just insert this very, very humbly. Whenever you're tempted to break relationship with another believer, whenever you're tempted to leave a fellowship of people out of offense and hurt and, and, and maybe not do it in a way that's, that's honorable or, or following good, healthy protocol, I want, you, I want to encourage you. There is a supernatural force that has been released on your behalf to function within the family of God. And that supernatural force are the very literal prayers of Jesus that I believe, personally, he's still praying today. There's a couple of specific ways that we uh, are a witness as the church, that we're a witness of who Christ is and what he's done. Number one, we're a witness with our love. And obviously, there's a lot of practical examples that we could give to that. But John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new command I give to you. Now, you guys have had thousands of commands under the old covenant and under the law. But I'm going to sum all of these up and give you a new command. And essentially, it's very, very simple, but it's very difficult to walk out. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another with all of our idiosyncrasies, with all of our character flaws, with all of our personality differences, with all of our disagreements and our differing perspectives on issues. Love one another of different cultures, different classes, different creeds, different races. Love one another of different generations. Love one another. You know, one of the most powerful witnesses that I've heard, and I just love hearing stories of this, is when, when, when people outside of Christ were infected and affected by a particular type of hatred against another people group. And, and you, you, you see this all over the place, whether it be Jew and Gentile or whether it be different races of people. I remember a story told by a, a pastor up in, up in Brooklyn, New York. His name is Dr. A.R. Bernard. And Dr. Bernard was telling a story that he used to be a part of what at that time was called the Black Panthers. And he hated white people. He hated them. He despised them. 
And then Jesus, the author of reconciliation. Jesus, the one whose blood was shed so that his people could enter back into reconciliation one with another and the one who said love one another so that the world may know that you are my disciples. And he began sharing the story that upon him receiving Christ, something just almost miraculously and supernaturally changed towards an entire people group that he had harbored and nurtured such levels of hatred and bitterness against. That's a witness, friends. That's a witness, you know, the way that you treat that coworker or that boss or that employer who is not treating you justly, that's a witness. And it doesn't mean that we roll over and let people just run over us. There is a way to maintain dignity and honor and self-respect and do things according to proper protocol, but the attitude in which we do those things, be an attitude of grace and honor and love and compassion. And Jesus says, when you do that, you become a witness everywhere that you go. Second way that we become a witness is not only with our love, we become a witness with our presence. Our very presence as a people that come together is a witness to the fact that God's kingdom has arrived on the earth. In fact, I, I ran across this. There's a conference that New Life is putting on later on uh, in the year. And I thought this was so interesting because I just popped up on this conference. There's a couple of guys there that I know and some personal friends of mine. And this was, the, this was the tagline. This was the description, the summary of the conference. It says this, the church is called to be a witness in the world of the arriving of the kingdom of God. Our very presence in the world testifies that God is not done here. Our very presence in the world, the fact that we as God's people exist, our incarnational presence testified to the fact God's still doing something here in the world. So regardless of what happens in November, we here in the world testify to the fact that it's not over. God is still at work in the earth. I'm just gonna read the rest of this. It says that God's spirit is at work to rescue, to redeem, and to restore a church's faithful presence in its community, in the places of pain, and in the places of strength is the embodiment of God's faithful presence in the world. Isn't that awesome? I love it. John chapter one, verse 14 says that the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. He, the eternal one, the glorious king, came to the earth, clothed himself with the rags of humanity, walked among us to let us know that we are not alone, but that the faithful witness, that's his name in Revelation, his name is the faithful witness is now here to dwell among us. And as we learned on Pentecost Sunday a couple weeks ago, John chapter 14, Jesus says, listen, it's good that I go away because unless I go away, I cannot send to you the comforter who is with you now, but he will be in you. And the very fact that Jesus ascended to the earth and sent the Holy Spirit by command of the Father, dwelling inside of every one of us and dwelling inside of us together, Scripture says that we together are a spiritual temple. 
And this is a really interesting dynamic because we find that individually, every single one of us are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet we're not complete because when we come together, we're spiritual stones that build a spiritual temple. All throughout scripture, you'll find this individual corporate tension that work together. We need each other. And when we come together, there is a special, there is a unique dynamic of God's presence that inhabits us together. And it's a witness to the earth. Third way that we witness to the earth is not only with our love, not only with our presence, but also with our works, the things that we do. Not just our prayers, not just our worship, not just our coming together, but the things that we do in Jesus' name are a witness to who God is. Matthew chapter five, verse 14. Matthew five and verse 14 through 16 says this. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town that is built on a hill cannot be hidden and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works or your good deeds. And in seeing your good deeds, they will then glorify your Father in heaven. I find it fascinating that throughout church history, even when in the early church, Christians were being martyred and they were being slaughtered and sent to arenas and awful things were being done to them while they were under Roman rule, it was still the church that was taking care of sick people. And, and they weren't just taking care of sick people within their own eth, you know, ethnic groupings. They were taking care of the sick people of the country of the people that they were being dominated by. That's called a witness. Listen, when you do good works in the name of Jesus, I want you to know, Scripture says right here, when they're seen, people at some point, maybe not initially, but at some point, those works will point to, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? The other day, Jonathan and, and Dan and I were driving down Nevada and we were taking a look at um, Penrose, St. Francis. And we were just taking inventory in, in the name of world religions and thinking about throughout the world, how many other, just, just, just hospitals, how many other hospitals were actually founded and ran by other world religions? And I haven't done my thorough research on this, but I can tell you at, gla at a glance, it's not very many. Most of the hospitals alone, we're not even talking about schools or other social services, we're talking about just hospitals all founded by God's people, Christians, in the name of Christ, understanding the kingdom, bringing healthcare to those that are full of disease, those whose bodies were, were, were broken down. That is an example of good works. That's an example of us being a witness to who God is. It's one of the reasons why we should pray for the church. It's one of the reasons why we should continue to surround the church. Listen, the people of God have always been a powerful force for God in the earth. Here's another unique nuance of witness, you guys. It's our legacy. It's our legacy. I mean, when you think about everything that happened in the New Testament, beginning in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, if you just pick up the book of Matthew and you start from there, and I love the New Testament. I love the New Testament. But if you just start there, you begin very quickly to realize something's missing here. There's, 
there's another chapter to this book, or maybe an entire book altogether that I've that 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 that's that's that's, that's missing if you just start at Matthew, and that's because the church that was birthed and that was founded by Jesus actually began again thousands of years prior when God called a man named Abram out of his father's country. See, so we're not just connected to the church at Pentecost, we're connected to redemptive history, redemptive salvation history that God worked through a person and a people. We're connected to a people that suffered in Egypt for 400 years. That's, a, that's part of our family line. That's part of the story that we're connected with the church of the living God. The reason why we should pray for the church is because the legacy of faith in Christ, the legacy of God's formation of his people and the legacy of God's kingdom work, that which has been done and that which is to come hinges on the church. It hinges on the church. A couple of years ago, there was an exhibit that took place here in town called Passages. It was an exhibit that was ran by uh, a member of the Green family who had essentially made their personal library and their personal uh, museum of the Bible and all of its developments throughout history. They just put that on display and took that from city to city for people to see, wow, this is where our Bible has come from. And I was convicted and I was amazed. Don't, don't you know that there were people that would hang out in a cave and by candlelight would translate the scriptures for hours upon hours upon hours. People whose lives were literally tortured and martyred for the sake of the preservation of the scriptures. The church is essential to the life of God being passed from generation to generation to generation. And just to echo here what my wife said today, it begins with our ability and our willingness and the spirit of revelation in our hearts to pass this on to the next generation. Guys, I wanna, I wanna just insert something here very gently and very graciously. At, at some level, uh, I'd, I'd like to just kind of lean back and give a little kickback onto an idea that I'm, I'm not called to children's ministry. Because if you are a Christian that belongs to the church and the family of the living God, every one of you is called to children's ministry. Because every one of us is called to the preservation of the faith and the advancement and the building of a Christian biblical worldview for generations to come. It's one of the beautiful things about the church. We're stuck in between generations. We're forced to honor the generations of the past who have lived, loved, died, suffered to preserve what we have. And now we are, we're obligated. We're obligated and I know that that word can have a negative nuance, but Paul used it all the time. He said, I'm a debtor. 
When I think about, this is Paul now speaking, when I think about the life that I would have if it weren't for Jesus rescuing me and placing me in a family and putting me right in the middle of a story that has many, many chapters before it and will have many, many chapters afterwards, Paul says, man, if if I wasn't rescued, now because I've been rescued, I am a debtor. I am obligated. I'm obligated to your children. And if you are in the family of God, you are obligated to mine because we are obligated to the preservation and we are obligated to the furtherance and the advancement of the gift of faith and life in Christ for generations to come. None of us really know when Christ will return. That's uncertain. But there's a little leadership principle I like to operate off of. It's called clarity in the midst of uncertainty. So if it's uncertain when Jesus is going to return, here's what's clear. What's clear is we want a prophetic witness on the earth for generations to come until he returns. That's what's clear. There's a great verse here in Hebrews chapter 11. I invite you to turn there with me in Hebrews 11. Verse 39, and for those of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 11, that's been known as the hallmark of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is just an incredible chapter that maps out and displays everything I talked about in terms of the baton of faith being passed from one generation to the next It begins with Abraham and talks about Abraham's faith being passed to Isaac and Isaac's being passed from his sons and on and on and on. Uh, You know, Israel's developed into a kingdom and into a nation and on and on and on. These people just, they, they lay their lives down so that the baton of faith can be passed on to the next generation. And here's how Hebrews 11, the hallmark of faith ends. Verse 39. These, meaning all of these people, people that carried the baton of faith, these were all commended for their faith. Friends, there will come a day we'll stand before God. We will stand before him and we will give an account of what we did with this faith. Not not just how this faith benefited our lives and how we gained and how we prospered and how we became the best version of ourselves, Here's what he's saying. What what did you do to make sure that baton of faith got passed on and instilled from generation to generation? He says, they'll all be commended, yet none of them received what had been promised. Look at verse 40. God had planned something better for us. Now keep in mind, this was being written thousands of years ago, but now it still applies to us. The people who are reading that that said, I am the us. I am the us, and I've got to think about the people that have gone before me, and now they're gone, and we are the us to have to think about the people that have gone before us. And this is amazing. Look at this. God had planned something better for us, for us, us, we, the family, the people of God. God planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Heaven is watching how we steward the faith in the earth. They're watching and they're counting on us. They're counting on us. The next way or the next reason, should I say, why we should pray for the church 
is not only the church a witness of who Jesus is, the church is the agent of God's kingdom in the earth. And, and what do I mean by that? We have taught now for weeks on what the kingdom of God is. We've taught for weeks on why the kingdom of God is important. We've taught for weeks on how the primary message of Jesus' ministry is the kingdom of God coming to the earth. We've talked about authority in the kingdom. We've talked about how nothing in the earth happens without sons and daughters submitted to the authority of God, making things happen under his command and wisdom and will into the earth. We've talked about all those things, but here's the thing. If we don't pray for the church, it's the people of God that bring the kingdom of God to the earth. It doesn't happen arbitrarily. The kingdom of God does not advance by accident. It advances out of the overflow of what is implanted and what grows out of God's people. If you have a weak church, you will have a weak kingdom. If you have a self-oriented people, you will not have a kingdom that advances very far. If you have an anemic church that cannot fight against the temptation of sin, that can't resist the temptation to be offended at one another, you will not have a kingdom that advances into the realm of government and business and education. Listen, if you can't work things out with me, if you can't work things out with one another, what's the incentive to work things out with an unbeliever? Don't be a quitter. Fight for kingdom relationships because the church is the agent of the kingdom in the earth. I wrote this down here in my notes. God's plan to disciple nations has always been through his people. It has always been that and it will always be that. He disciples nations no other way he has no plan B. We're it. We're it. And when I say we, I'm not just speaking of Antioch. I'm talking about the people of God. We are it. He put all of his baskets, all of his eggs in the basket of the church. That's it. He put all of his stock in the basket of the church. There is no other way for him. Matthew 28, very, very well-known verse in this family of believers. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus says, all authority, let's throw it up there, 18 through 20, chapter 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, now go and disciple nations. Disciple the institutions, disciple the mind molders, disciple the gates, disciple the ruling influential agencies of culture, disciple them. They're undiscipled. They, they, they're not thinking biblically. They're not, they're not acting biblically. They do not have the way and the wisdom of the kingdom in mind. You've got to disciple them. It takes time. It takes perseverance. It takes sacrifice. It takes an army. It takes people working strategically, intentionally, systematically, together to disciple a nation. You know, you, you know how you start discipling a nation? Start by discipling a small group of people. Get connected into a small group of people. Be a strong church. Be a people that when you, when you go out and to do your assignment in the marketplace, you've got a strong group of people that are surrounding you, encouraging you. Don't quit. Keep it up. Keep fighting. I'm contending with you. It's that 
over and over and over again. But this is the reason why we should pray for the church. Number three, this is why we should pray for the church. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter three. 1 Timothy chapter three, Paul is writing to his young son in the faith, literally in the last chapters of his life. He knows that he is about to enter into the resurrected life. He is securing the legacy of faith that he has imparted into spiritual sons, particularly this spiritual son by the name of Timothy. And this is what he says here in 1 Timothy chapter three, verse 14. Verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. The implication there is we don't know how to conduct ourselves in God's household. How many of y'all heard your mom or dad when you was younger? Act like you don't, act like you know. Act like you know. Act like you've been somewhere before. This is what Paul is saying. He's telling Timothy, I'm gonna teach you how to act because people don't know how to act. But I'm gonna teach you. This is what it looks like to be in a family. Now, those are some really, really important words here. He says, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Let me end with this. There's two components of the church here that Paul mentions. Number one, he mentions household. And if you were here with us three years ago, you remember that year we talked about oikos. Oikos is the Greek word, which basically just means it's a house, it's a household, it's a family. We are a family. We are a spiritual family bonded together by the Holy Spirit. In fact, you know, when you think about the definition of the church, very, very simply, what is a church? The church is the people of God identified by Jesus, bound together in God's spirit and about the Father's business. That's what the church is. We're a family. That's what Paul is saying. The household of God. Every time we gather together, you are entering into a household of believers. But then he says this. He says, the household of God, which is the church, where there's ecclesia. Numerous definitions for ecclesia. Very simply, on its simplest level, it just means to be called out. We were called out of darkness. We were called out of the world. We were called out of the mindsets, the attitudes, the culture, the structure of the world. We we're called out ones. But the ecclesia was also a term used in that day for a ruling governing council. So we're called to take counsel together. We're called to deliberate. We're called to make plans. We're called to argue things out in the spirit until we get clarity on truth, on how to execute that truth strategically. We're a war council. We're a congressional council in the spirit. When we get together and we pray, there is a governing council dynamic that takes place in the heavenlies. And there's a lot of just nuances and incredible things that can be unpacked and unfolded there. But I wanna hone in here as I close on this, this concept. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. I, 
I've read that the church is the immune system of society. You take away the immune system from the human body and you become susceptible to every disease and you will not last long. You take the church from the earth, the, the earth will not last long. We are the immune system. How do we do that? We do that through our prayers. We do that through our witness. We do that through our presence. We do that through our, our priestly vocation of instructing the earth. This is how you rule in council. This is how you lead. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, hey, those guys, this is how they lead. They rule. They lead by dictating. They lead by overthrowing. He says, not so with you. Why? Because Jesus knows that type of leadership results in death, in chaos, in division, in fear. Jesus says, hey, listen, this is how you become the immune system of the world. Lead in love and service. And it'll change the fabric of society. It'll change the way that families look. It'll change the way churches look. It'll change the way governments look. It'll change the way nations look over and over and over again. When the church function as the people of God, we function as a prophetic witness of his kingdom and as an immune system, protecting truth. This is the truth of your identity. This is the truth of your future. This is the truth of your origin. This is the truth of how great marriages last. This is the truth of how to raise up children in godliness and righteousness. This is the truth of sexuality. This is the truth of leadership. This is the truth of finance. This is the truth of money. This is the truth. This is why Paul, when he speaks about spiritual warfare, he talks about ideas mindsets, belief systems, worldviews. He says, you have to take those thoughts captive. How do we do that? With truth. For centuries, the church has fought and died, laid their lives down to preserve truth so that the world could be renewed by the kingdom that has arrived. This is why we should pray for the church. Next week, we're gonna talk more specifically, real practical, how you can pray for the church, how you can pray for me. One of the ways we pray for our church is praying for our church leaders. It's not saying that I'm better than any other marketplace leader. It's just in this particular function, I desperately need your prayers. Church is full of burnt stones and hurting people that have been hurt by leaders leaders that have fallen, leaders that have disappointed them, leaders that have abused them, and that affects the kingdom. It just flat out affects the kingdom. So I'm gonna ask you guys to stand with him this morning. Jesus, we believe in you. We believe that we are one holy Catholic apostolic church according to the Nicene Creed. We believe in the saints' communion, God. We believe that we are the people of God, the church, the pillar, the bulwark, the buttress, the foundation of truth in the earth. We believe that we are the family of God. We believe we are the leaven of the kingdom, leavening the earth 
we believe, God, that we are your people, agents of transformation and change in the kingdom of God, called into loving witness, called into loving relationship, one with another. God, I pray that you would just continue to unfold revelation by your spirit of who we are as the church, what it means to be connected to saints of old for centuries and to be connected to saints of old potentially for centuries in the future. Father, I pray by your spirit you would help us to be faithful stewards of the message of life, the message of the kingdom, our identity in Jesus, our assignment to bring and manifest heaven in this earth. I bless you today, Antioch Church. You're not just a community. You're not just a group of individuals that are assembled in the same room. You are the church of the living God. You are a family of believers. You are called out ones. You are awakened to life as sons and daughters, to the revelation and the message of the kingdom, to the assignment God has called you to bring. With the authority that's given to me, I commission you today to go into your field as the church, to bring life, to bring light, to bring truth, to bring restoration, to heal, to make right. We pray for the welfare and the peace of our city, that we would leaven this city with the life of God. I bless you today in Jesus' name.